the the series we're going to start is a challenging series. And it's challenging because it's the part of the Bible that if you were in church as a little kid, you heard these stories over and over to the point where they're almost like a lullaby and you've, you've fallen asleep on them. And you're, we're all kind of guilty of being raised in, in an environment in the church, and this is the American church today, that often just leaves the Old Testament alone because the Old Testament's hard work. If you're going to dig in and get what God is trying to teach you through the Old Testament, you have to engage and dig a little bit. Because if you just take it at face value, like we're taught in Western civilization to do, then you're going to miss out on what God was actually trying to reveal about himself through the Old Testament. And if you don't know world history, you know, or, or maybe you slept through that class. I did in high school. I woke up in college and really woke up when I started to teach it. Western civilization or the scientific and Western approach to thinking and the study of literature came about during what's known as the Hellenistic Age, which you, you can Google that if you want. But that, that's the Greek culture. And part of what shocks me is the Greek culture was all about asking questions and, and trying to get to the bottom of things. And yet when it came to looking at the Old Testament, Western civilization and Western culture is going to start moving away from the study of the Old Testament because it doesn't line up scientifically with what they think. And there's a lot of people who won't walk in the doors of the church because the Church of America, the Western Church, tries to teach the Old Testament as a science and a history textbook instead of digging just a little bit deeper and showing that the author or authors of Genesis in particular were trying to help reveal the nature of God through the stories of their history. And sadly for us, a lot of people look at the Old Testament and, and I saw... Coincidentally, a Facebook post on this. So if you're watching, person who posted that, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. And people, you know, on Facebook will always toot their horn and say how great you are when you post something. The Old Testament is not all about God's wrath and anger. We've come to believe that in, in the Western church, that it's all just showing God's wrath, anger, judgment, the law. And yes, all those things are there, but you know how many times God actually pours out his wrath in the Old Testament? Three times. Three times in Torah, he pours out his wrath. You know, he poured out his wrath in the New Testament too. People kind of skip over that. We like to glaze over that. You know what he poured out on Jesus on the cross? Yeah, we don't want to talk about that because, well, that might ruin our comfortable, loving, touchy. No, that's the reality. We're going to dig deeper. It's going to be hard. We're going to have hard conversations. There's going to be times you walk out of here with the what just happened effect. And you're going to have to go dig into the word of God and say, God, teach me. God, why does it say this? Because there's moments in, in Genesis, you look at it, if you read it and really read it, you're going to look at it like, what? Huh? And, and you have to engage with God and the Holy Spirit 
and dig deeper. So this is all about digging, and we've already started doing it. Okay, in our previous series, we actually hit what would be the first three lessons of this series. The, the first one is we talked about God being the creator who was the God who knows when to say it's enough. And the dual side of that lesson is God also knew when it was enough and he knew to rest. And he wanted us to understand that he knows in our life when it's enough and when to give us those periods of rest. And he's called us to enjoy rest as worship. The second thing that we learned, part two, would be you're not an animal. You don't have to give in to the desires of your flesh. We give the devil way too much credit for stuff that's actually in us. We have a human nature, and Paul talks about it over and over in the New Testament. He talks about his battles with his flesh. People think that when they get saved from their sins that the battle with their flesh is over, and that's naive and stupid. That's, that's one of the dumbest teachings in the church is this idea that once you get saved, you don't struggle with things anymore. That you get delivered from them forever and you'll never be tempted with them again. The Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ, was tempted. What makes you so special? That's hard preaching. That's reality though. If Jesus was tempted, why do we think we're going to walk through life without it? But you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. You're not an animal. You don't have to give in to those desires. You know, we'll, we'll go with the simple one that I like to pick on. You don't have to eat the donut. You really want to eat the donut. You don't have to. Okay, I skipped over some slides. I'm sorry, I got into it. God made the boundaries through separation and creation, and then He filled them. And then He placed His masterpiece, you and I, in the middle of it to help take care of it. We're the image bearer and the caretaker of everything God created. That has not changed. That calling is still on your life today. People in this room understand that greatly because we care for the land, we care for our animals, we exercise dominion over everything God puts in our hand. We, we exercise the, the caretaking of it to be good stewards of what God's given us. And we also understand that God called it good. God called it good. And some of you, that may be the only thing you take away this morning. You look up you look in the mirror when you get up in the morning and remind yourself God called it good. When your hair's a mess, your makeup's not done, ladies, God called it good. Gentlemen, when you, everything cracks and pops when you get out of bed, God called it good. Okay, we're going to jump ahead to the ending of chapter 3, right after God has dealt with the fact that Eve and Adam both gave in to the desire to be like God. And what's really crazy, if you go back and read the account and you ask the hard questions, they were already, just by reading in the story, there, there's questions I have. Did they not already know good from evil? Because they'd been told not to do it, and when they did it, 
you know, something else entered into the equation. And I wonder if it was just the transforming of that knowledge into, into their life, where they understood what it was to be ashamed that they had done evil. And these are, these are hard questions you have to deal with at that point. But we end the chapter with God saying, I'm not going to make you allow, your, allow you to cover yourself. I'm going to make clothing for you that will last a whole lot longer than the leaves you've shown, sewn together. Because anybody ever tried to make your own grass hat or skirt or necklace when you were a kid? How long did those bad boys last? Not very long. Now, if you went out and killed a deer and tanned the hide and made yourself some buckskin pants, you're a real Western man. But anyway, those things would last a little longer. Okay, how many of you wear a leather belt? Stuff that's made out of animals lasts really long time. Now, down the road, we figured out how to use cotton, but that's a different story. But we end the chapter with God showing his mercy to Adam and Eve and his benevolence, his giving generosity and his love. And the last thing we, sh we see, and a lot of people just skip over this because we see it as such an act of judgment, we don't realize that it's mercy. God places cherubim at the entrance to Eden so there's no way that mankind comes and takes and eats of the tree of life and stays in that condition forever. It's one of the greatest acts of mercy that we've wrongly labeled judgment. And I did some digging, listened to a rabbi, which, sorry if that offends you, but sometimes if you're going to study the Old Testament, you need to go to the experts. The, the Jews know their stuff. But this free nugget, cherubim only show up two times in the Torah. The, the original encampment of the Old Testament that is still studied, has been studied by Judaism for thousands of years. Shows up two places in Genesis chapter 3 regarding the tree of life. And it shows up again in Exodus when God is giving the commands to Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there, there's some very specific things that get placed in the Ark. The Torah, the, the books, the, and all the books of the law, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod that budded, a pot of manna. And, and you look at it, and the way that the Jews regarded the Torah, God's Word, they called it the tree of life. And that's evidence if you go and you read what Solomon would say in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18. He calls the word of God the very tree of life. So the cherub, the cherubim that were guarding the tree of life in Eden were also set on top and guarded the word of the word, the tree of life that was available to them in worship. That was the freebie. Now we're going to get on to what would be part three of this series. Master the beast that wants more. The real story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter four. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. I love the way it phrases that. For the adults in the room, we know what that means. Okay. But the, the phrasing of new 
You know, there was nothing separating them. Knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, there's, there, there's some, I'm looking, it's specifically more women that are looking at this like, what? I have gotten. It, it gets even better if you get into the Hebrew. That word gotten is translated acquired. How many of you, when you look at your children, say, hmm, I have acquired them? I've acquired them along the way. This is what Eve says about Cain and Cain's very name. You know, I have gotten a man. I've acquired Cain's, you know, I've acquired a man. I can't get past that. That's so weird. But the name Cain translates possession. Any of you look at your kids like they're a possession? They're my, they're my most cherished possession. I, I have heard children labeled this. When they teach us in bus driving school, you're carrying around a priceless resource or a priceless possession. It's not new. It's just something we overlook. You know, the, when kids walk in your class, teachers, you know, do we look at them each as, hey, those are individuals made in the image of God. They're wonderfully created. Or do we look at them as the priceless resource that's been entrusted to us to mold and shape their young minds? I can tell you what the education world wants you to say. I hope you said the other, but I'm telling you, there's days that junior high kids walk in, and I'm like, great, I got all this. I mean, that's, that's being real. I got all of this, all this. This is what I've acquired today. But Cain's name means possession. And again, she bore his brother Abel. This time, there's nothing said by Eve. Something, said, something about the second born kid. Okay, and to be fair, I know the rest of the story because I've read Genesis. Abel is the middle child. He's already being treated like the middle child. Eve says nothing at his birth. Says nothing at his birth. And, and Abel was keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And with no comment from Eve, we have to go get the translators to help us out. Abel in Hebrew means breath. And how prophetic is that name when you know the rest of the story? Abel's life is nothing but a breath. And it's snatched away quicker than it should be. It's one of the most tragic stories of the Bible. It is a young man in his prime just eliminated from this world. Okay. Back to the, the fact of what they did. Abel was the keeper of sheep. And Cain was the worker of the ground. Now, now, a lot of times in Western culture, we try and, and tie all these things into it. Of these two, who's actually fulfilling what God said to Adam? Cain. Because God told Adam when Adam and Eve sinned, you're, you're part of the curse is you're going to work the ground. You're going to have to work the ground for your food and you're going to have to fight the ground. If you get back to the literal translations, you're going to fight it the whole way. 
I, I think Russian Thistle was born that day. Sandburr stickers were born that day. I don't think they existed in all of creation until that moment when God said, the ground, the very ground is going to fight you. So Cain is actually carrying on his father's legacy. Now, what do we know about when you carry on your father's legacy? Do you keep it right where it is or do you try and build on it? What's human nature tell you to do? Build on it. I'm going to be better than my father. This is where it gets really, really interesting when we look at Cain and Abel. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now, getting into the Hebrew, that's where it gets tricky. Because if we boiled it down to its simplest form, God looked at Abel and his offering and he had respect. And he looked at Cain's and his offering and he didn't have respect for it. In the room, how many of you in this room want to be respected? Reality. That's just who we are. We want to be respected. But here's, here's a, the, a simple tie-in. It's not really the heart of the lesson. Cain brought some of it. He brought some of the fruits. If you're going to make an offering to the God of heaven, are you going to be guilty of just bringing some? And this parallels very well in the New Testament when Jesus is talking about the, the widow and the widow and the, the Pharisee and, or the publican, however you want to call him, the guy that came and made a big display of his offering and the widow brought the very last and every bit of what she had. She gave the best of what she had. And this guy gave out of his abundance. Very nice parallels that we'll see when we, when we know the New Testament. But the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Abel brought the best that he had to offer. And, and I'm looking at it and I, I'm very judgmental of Cain. I'll be real and be fair. What'd you expect? You know, what'd you expect when you brought something so, you know, just kind of off the cuff? And, and we don't have the whole story. Maybe he saw Abel bringing an offering and in a hurry, hey, I've, I've got to do it too. We don't have any of that. We try and tie it in as Westerners, but it doesn't always work. But how do you feel when you're respected versus when you're disregarded? And what makes most of us feel disregarded? If we want to get to the root of it, it's comparison. My kids hate being compared to one another. I hate being compared to my little brother. I hate it with a passion. 
You've met my little brother, right? He can fix just about anything. He really can. And sometimes he can be a, a real fun guy to be around. Other times he's pain in the butt. I'm never that way. No, I, I really am. I'm, I'm a pain to be around too. You guys just don't get the full dose of me. But the, the comparisons that I always caught as a kid, and, and maybe this will help us connect a little bit to Cain as we get, we get caught in that trap of comparison and we feel like we have to do something. We have to do something to make sure that, that our name is remembered. That, man, I want people to remember me for being better than my brother. And maybe it's not your brother, but maybe it's that coworker. I want to be remembered for being better than him, so I'm going to show up five minutes early. It's not because I really want to work hard and show the boss anything more than I'm better than that guy. Or I'm better than that Karen who's always complaining all around the office. These are real things that we deal with and we're seeing them in their most dangerous form in Genesis. Then the Lord said to Cain, and I want you to hear this today, and let God say this to you. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why, why, are, you, why are you stuck? Why, why do you feel like you have to be comparing yourself? And, and he goes on and he says, if you do what is right, would you not be accepted? Notice he doesn't say anything about the previous offering here. He's talking about what's fixing to happen. This is God speaking to us when we're about to walk out the door today. If you do what is right, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? There's people that, whoa, whoa, you can't say that. In the New Testament, it's not about what we do. Which if you want the great debate on that, go to the New Testament and get that wonderful debate that the author, I believe it's in James, has with himself about faith versus works. Because he chases himself in circles, which is also how Genesis works. You've got to learn to go through the circle with them. Faith without works is dead. But can you really be doing the works without faith? I mean, interesting stuff, but, but if, you do what, if you do not do what is right, oh, oh, if you choose the easy path, if you choose not to do what is right, and sometimes doing right is the hard thing. Actually, more times than not, it is the hard thing. It is a difficult thing. If you choose the easy route, or as my buddy Coach Nelson says, the water route, Water runs to the easy route. Not in this part of the country because it dries up before it gets there. But if, if you do what is right, if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you. And that word desires is the same thing, same word in Hebrew that when Eve looked at the apple, it was the same feeling that she had. Have you ever thought about your sin, your fleshly nature that way? 
We're not talking about Satan and external things here. We're talking about what lies in you, what you have to fight with, those desires that would lead you astray, that would get you off of the path, those desires that tempt you to do wrong. They desire you. They want to have you. He goes on, he makes this statement, and this is... This is something that every Christian needs to understand because you're more than equipped to do this through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, but you must rule over it. Paul said, I die daily. I crucify my flesh that Christ might live in me. And the way that he phrases it in the Greek is actually live in me to full capacity. You must rule over it. And Cain's response, he's facing one of the greatest foes that we face, and that's the desire within us. He wants to make a name for himself. He wants to be known. He wants to be respected. This is how Cain replies. He goes and says to his brother, let's go out to the field. Let's go out to the field. Who worked in the field? Cain. Okay, so he knows it inside and out. We, we all, it never really says that he killed him with a rock. In Scripture, I've looked, I've dug really deep in the Hebrew. It never says he killed him in a, with a rock. But who's going to know where everything in the field is? Cain. I don't know if he killed him with a rock, if he choked him out with his bare hands. I don't know how he killed him. But he took him out to a place where he would have the advantage. And he killed his brother. Cain sought to eliminate the competition to his name. He sought to eliminate it. And he did what he thought was best for him. This is a foundation, and Genesis 1 through 11 is really a preface to the narrative that God will drive home throughout the Torah of who He chooses to use, why He chooses them, and how He has an unending love for mankind. But Cain did what he thought was best for Cain. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And that word where can actually translate how. How's your brother Abel? I had a problem with this question because the all-knowing God is asking Cain what he already knows. He knows Abel is dead. Why is he asking this question? But why does God ask us questions when he already knows the answer? Because God wants to make you say it. God has such a high regard for words. When He created everything we saw, everything we see, He created it. How many things in creation did He physically put His hand on? Man. The rest of the time, He spoke it into existence, the power of word. So He's wanting Cain to say it. He's making Cain identify right here. And Cain replies almost sarcastically, and he lies, if you want the cold hard truth. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
And the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I'm wondering if Cain could hear what God heard. Could Cain actually hear the repercussions of his sin the way that God could hear them? I don't know. And I won't know until we get to heaven, but when God says something like, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. God immediately shows that there are consequences for your sin. To Adam and Eve, he showed there were consequences for not trusting his word, not trusting the story. To Cain, immediately there are consequences for your sin. We all know from the New Testament, the wages of sin, the overall cost is death. The Old Testament reminds us there are consequences of that sin. You don't hear that preached in church a lot because everybody loves that grace is the magic eraser that gets rid of everything. But I'm telling you, if you smoked 20 packs of cigarettes a day for 40 years, there are consequences. Unless God steps in and divinely heals you, you're going to reap the consequences of that. There are sins from my past that I know I'm forgiven of, but I still battle with the scars from that sin. I still battle because that's still the area the enemy will come and try to tempt me in my weak moments. And when I'm tempted and I'm struggling, I understand what it is to be Cain because that's when I become restless. I wish this was a light and fluffy make you feel good. This is a bring you back to reality and understand that even when you feel those restless moments, when you feel that temptation, you are given the power by God to stand up and resist the devil and he will flee from you. To resist your own flesh by acknowledging that you're not your own. You were bought with a price. All these New Testament things tie back to Old Testament truth. We see this as God's wrathful judgment on Cain. But finish the story. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. Which makes me wonder how God interacted with these people. What was so different that they, that they understood they were going to be, and that's physical presence in the Hebrew that you were going to be physically removed from God at this point. Which maybe that's where we get the tie-in of sin separating us from God, but the New Testament says nothing can separate us from Him. Cain didn't really understand this. Today you are driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Hmm, didn't God just say that's what He'd be, a restless wanderer? <clears throat> and whoever finds me will kill me. Whoever finds me will kill me. Why does, it, why does Cain think that? 
If you're a restless wanderer, the, the old English verb uh, term for that is vagabond. If you're a vagabond, what makes you assume that people will kill you? You have no place. You have no home. You have no security, no fortress, no structure. If you're wandering, you're not a part or attached to a clan. Why does the devil want you to feel like you're lost, wandering and alone? Because he knows what the power of belonging to the body of Christ is. To belong and to be protected by just being with the flock and being under the care of your shepherd. And the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Cain, at his worst moment, God still cared enough to put a mark on him and claim him. What we saw is, for so long is just judgment and, and vengeance being poured out by God. We miss the fact that even in his, in his righteous judgment, He's full of mercy. And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I thought, well, that's interesting because I, I like geography. And you're going to see that, that over and over people will go east and then God draws them back west towards Eden. And God still is calling to us and calling us back to Eden. But the land of Nod, Nod means wandering. Cain was allowed to settle in a land, but he's still a wanderer in the land of wandering. Now, how does this hit us? As Christians, we're called to do well. And to do well by making the name of Jesus well known. If you're going out there to make your name well known and to build your legacy, you're going to be restless and wandering your whole life. If you go out with the intent of I'm going to go, I'm going to walk in the door of my job today and my goal today is to do this job as though I'm doing it for Jesus. And if the opportunity avails itself, I'm going to make his name well known. I love it when a professional athlete gives all the glory to Jesus Christ. Because they're given a great platform and instead of, hey, I want to be known as the greatest quarterback of all time. Yes, I do, but I don't want to be known for that in eternity. I want to be known for making much of Jesus. Because the danger that we face is we're easily led astray when we're trying to make our own name great. And we're going to see that over and over through Genesis. So hang on to that thought. But in Philippians, Paul writes to us, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. That, that's a, a great tie into a later story of the man that God chooses. You want to be someone God chooses, value other people more than yourself.
Doesn't mean debase yourself in false humility, but genuinely care about other people. Genuinely care. Invest yourself in their lives for the sake of the gospel. 